Good evening to you all. I've had a few conversations with you in the last weeks that went along the line of this is interesting and I can I can see it has some power and maybe it goes somewhere but from my perspective if you can't apply it in daily life what's the point so I must say I completely agree having one of those minds that came to the Dharma looking for applicability. What to do about this world, what to do about this, this truth of suffering that the Buddha takes as the first noble truth. There's an interesting book out now uh, put together by Bhikkhu Bodhi that's called The Buddha's Teachings on Social and Communal Harmony. And this is an an anthology of discourses from the Pali Canon that pulls together parts of the Buddha's teachings that Bhikkhu Bodhi thinks are particularly applicable to our current state as human actors in the world, that current state needing significant upgrade in our participation, both in quantity, but perhaps more importantly, quality. And of course, there are many, many different ways that we can approach this topic of what's to be done, what's to be done to protect the planet, what's to be done to bring about justice, what's to be done to be inclusive, what should be done to protect from harm, what should be done to create fairness, what should be done. And all those are questions of what to do. And the Buddha has some things to say that bear upon this, but there are also other questions which have to do with how can we do it? Meaning, what do we need to have in hand in terms of our own development and in terms of pragmatic perspectives and tools so that we can be useful beings, being, beings that are contributory rather than just being swept up in the dukkha of the time and allowing ourselves to become polarized to the extent that we become part of the suffering and not effective actors or leaders. So this book that Bhikkhu Bodhi pulled together was originally prepared for use by Sri Lankan monks who were trying to build social harmony in Sri Lanka. So those of you who know anything about what's going on in Sri Lanka and what has gone on there for a long time, know that there's a lot of conflict between Buddhist and Muslim communities there. And so this book was put together to help equip the monks who were interested in finding a way to peace to have some kind of framework for their consideration of how to proceed. And it's also been used in a training program for young Dalit people in India And these are people who are members of a group that was formerly named or called untouchables. So this would be the lowest group in the caste system there. 
And an interesting thing has happened uh, in India since the time of Gandhi uh, in that significant numbers of people from this particular community have actually converted to Buddhism as a way of uh, getting out of this uh, fixed status as being the permanent uh, inferior group. So many of them have converted and are educating and re-educating themselves in order to be social activists and supports in their own community. So these folks attend the Nakaloka Nargarjuna Institute. And this text is actually used as part of their training. So it's had a few test runs. So I'm going to give a little bit of a panoramic review of the contents here. And a few close-ups of particular suttas that I think help fill in some of the particulars right from the mouth of the Buddha. So these are suggestions for your own uh, training and understanding if you're interested in having a platform to bring benefit forward in the the greater world. So a first thing to say is about the history or the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha was on the plains of the Ganges 2,600 years ago in northern India. And at that particular time, there was a lot of social turmoil because the whole distribution of power in the society was changing. So formerly the structure there had been more along clan-based or tribal forms of organization. You know, and the Buddha would often re, um, refer to himself as the son of the Skyans. That was his particular clan. And he would refer to different people as clansmen. So these are, you might want to say, almost extended family groupings where there was probably some sort of biological relationship to almost everybody in the group. And for human beings, of course, for many, many, many years, we existed in that kind of way, in these much smaller groupings. But at this particular time, the social organization was becoming more like a hierarchy. And there was a a move towards what we would call now monarchy with power more centralized in a particular person. So this was a very violent time. And if if you read through the suttas, uh, you'll see reference to this. You'll see various groups coming to the Buddha, asking about, you know, what, what should we do to keep from being overrun by these other groups or kings coming to the Buddha saying, you know, what, what should I do about this situation that looks like it could result in a war. And there was a lot of raiding, a lot of warring. Um, and that was the environment in which he lived. And if you know more about the Buddha's story, you know that part of the backstory was that when the Buddha was born, there was a wise man who showed up at the palace and said to his father, your son has one of two destinies. He can either become the Buddha or he can become a world monarch. He can be the person that winds up controlling everything. And it's said that part of the sheltered nature of the Buddha's upbringing had to do with dad wanting the Buddha to go in the direction of worldly success, not spiritual search. And so that was part of the rationale for keeping him away from all of the distressing things that could be seen along the old age sickness and death line. 
So when the Buddha left the palace and left the family situation, there was a lot of anger towards him because he was seen as walking out on responsibility at this time where there was so much danger and social conflict. It would be like your greatest potential warrior and leader deciding they didn't want to do it when you felt that there was danger. So that was part of his karma. So this is what the Buddha said about what was going on after he left home. Fear has arisen from one who has taken up violence. Behold the people engaged in strife. I will tell you of my sense of urgency, how I was stirred by urgency. Having seen people trembling like fish in a brook with little water, when I saw them hostile to one another, fear came upon me. The world was insubstantial all around. All the directions were in turmoil. Desiring an abode for myself, I did not see any place unoccupied, meaning it was everywhere. It was everywhere, the danger, the conflict, the violence. So the Buddha also lived in an insecure time. And it's useful then to take a look at his teachings and what he had to say that is applicable to that time, applicable to those kinds of conflicts, and applicable to what we experience now. So if you take a look at Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, you'll see it has a structure by topic. And the first thing he talks about is right understanding and how that comes first. So the very first piece that he talks about is that right understanding, better known as wise view, is the orienting principle for everything else that comes after. So wise view is the first step on the Eightfold Path, right? It's the Four Noble Truths in its supra-mundane form. Wise view means the Four Noble Truths. But there's another part of wise view that's called mundane wise view. And that has to do with an understanding of karma to start. That morally significant actions have the potential to produce corresponding results related to their ethical qualities. So actions create results. There's also an understanding in mundane wise view that what leads to growth and development and positive evolution of a person and what changes them in negative ways hinges upon an understanding of what's wholesome and skillful and what's unwholesome and unskillful. That that's a fundamental axis. So if you want to evolve, if you want to develop, if you want to grow, you need to understand what's skillful, what's wholesome, and what isn't. And you need to align yourself with what's wholesome and skillful and let go of or mitigate the other. This teaching on karma also is a pointing out that there is a moral law which is objective and functions whether or not we're aware of it or agree with it. So ignorance is not a protection in this case. So the Buddha is saying this, this axis of wholesome and unwholesome 
is woven into the fabric of conditioned reality, that's a very important and bold assertion. Because it suggests that with the teachings on karma, to not act in accord to this basic understanding is to sow the seeds for suffering, whether your own or whether the suffering is collective. So there's another piece of mundane wise view, which is that there is personal responsibility for one's deeds and an understanding that there's immediate and downstream effects. So we're matrixed beings, we exist within the system of causes and conditions in this lawful universe. We're embedded in everything and yet it is our own actions of body, speech and mind that set the direction for either our evolution or our, our own devolution. So he hands it right back to us. So here's a couple suttas that the Buddha This is uh, Sariputta holding forth on understanding the unwholesome and the wholesome. When, friends, a noble disciple understands the unwholesome and root of it, the wholesome and the root of it, in that way he is one of right view. And what is the unwholesome and its root? The destruction of life is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Sexual misconduct is unwholesome. False speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, idle chatter is unwholesome. Covetedness is unwholesome. Ill will unwholesome. Wrong view is unwholesome. And what is the root of the unwholesome? Greed is a root. Delusion is a root. Hatred is a root. And what is the wholesome? Abstaining from the destruction of life, from taking that which is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, from false speech, divisive speech, harsh and idle speech, non-covetousness is wholesome, benevolence is wholesome, right view is wholesome. And what is the root? Non-greed, non-hatred, Non-delusion is a root. So that's a pointing to that very important distinction. There's a group at the time called the Kalamas. And this was a group of people who apparently had some interest in Dharma teachings and they would have various people wander through the community. At this time, there were many wandering sadhus who had all different kinds of versions of things. And they would come through and they'd, they'd go to the center of the town and put down their staff and then download their, their version of what is true. And the Kalimas came to the Buddha and, they, and said to him, you know, all these people come to town, they've got their versions, they're all saying, you know, different things. So how do we make this discernment between what's reliable and what isn't? So he says, well, it's fitting you're perplexed and to fitting you're in doubt. And he says, don't go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by scripture, by logical reading, by inferential reasoning, 
by reason, cognition, by acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of the speaker because you think, this ascetic is my guru. So he's saying, well, don't take it on these <clears throat> these bases. That's not enough of a test. So he says, but when you know for yourself, these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are cens- censured by the wise, these things, if accepted and undertaken, leave to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he gives them the test. So what do you think? When greed, hatred, and delusion arise in a person, is it for his welfare or his harm? Well, it's for his harm. And if somebody is overtaken by greed, hatred, and delusion, and does things like destroys life and takes what isn't given and speaks falsehood and encourages others to do that, will that lead to harm or suffering? Well, yeah. So that's the Buddha's test. So that's the first point. This is important to know. And then there's the the next piece, which is personal training. So even if we have an intellectual understanding uh, that greed, hatred, and delusion are the suffering direction, we still have our conditioned propensities. We've described the Buddhist path many times as being an uphill kind of endeavor. So we've also pointed to the fact that we're engaging in this process of bhavana, this direct cultivation of the heart and mind. So we're saying we can move the existing set point that we have in the direction of greater wisdom, compassion, renunciation. And it takes training to do so. So in order for wise wise, uh, view to be reflected in actions of body, speech, and mind, We need to be walking the Eightfold Path to develop the heart and mind in alignment with this understanding. And you can see that wise view supports the arising of wise intention. Because if the the direction of evolution is in the direction of generosity, compassion, wisdom, letting go, and those other things, we're going to need renunciation, we're going to need the cultivation of metta, we're going to need the cultivation of compassion. And then we're also going to need the restraint of acting out the things that are manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion, and which are causes of suffering for ourselves and others. Which, if you remember uh, the talk on sila, means wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, which are the third, fourth, and fifth steps of the Eightfold Path. Moral restraint not doing certain things that we know bring harm. And of course, generosity is a really important value in the Buddhist teachings. The arc of the practice can be described as dana, sila, samadhi. Generosity, morality, mental development. So the Buddha says uh, this about sila. (laughs) 
Here a noble disciple, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from it. By abstaining from the destruction of life, he gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, enmity, and affliction. He himself, in turn, enjoys immeasurable freedom from fear, enmity, and affliction. This is the first gift, a great gift, primal of long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, and never before adulterated, which is not being adulterated and will not be adulterated, not repudiated by wise aesthetics and Brahmins. And then it goes through the rest of the five uh, precepts. So that's the sila piece, the moral restraint, but then there are the pieces that are involved with the direct cultivation of things. The power of cultivating wise thought in particular. How we think about things, how we shape our own perceptions, how we shape our own intentions by taking a look at how we think, what our habitual patterns of thought are, and whether they're wise or not. So the Buddha did this very interesting thing in his own arc of practice, which was before he was enlightened, he did a thought experiment. So he said, while I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and thoughts of harming, and on the other side thoughts of renunciation, benevolence, and harmlessness. Thus I dwelled in a thought of sensual desire, ill will, or harming arose in me, I understood thus. This thought has arisen in me. It leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from nibbana. And when I considered this, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsides in me. And then the, whenever a thought of sensual desire, ill will, or thought of harming arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. And then here's the, perhaps the most important part of this. He says, monks, whatever a monk frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, he has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate this, and then his mind inclines in this way. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming, he has abandoned the thought of harmlessness to cultivate the thought of harming, and then his mind inclines to thoughts of this. Then he says, I dwelled thus, a thought of renunciation, a thought of benevolence, a thought of harmlessness arose in me, and I understood this good thought has arisen. It doesn't lead to my affliction or that of others. It aids wisdom, it doesn't cause difficulties, and leads to nibbana. If I think and ponder on this thought, even for a night or a day or a night and day, there's nothing to fear from it. But, if I thought about it too much, I could, might tire the body and tire the mind. Monks, whatever a monk frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of mind. If he frequently thinks and ponders on thoughts of renunciation, his in mind inclines to renunciation. Thoughts and pondering on benevolence inclines to benevolence. So, in the practice of the Brahma Viharas, you're inclining your mind towards skillful and useful and beneficial types of thinking. And you've probably noticed as you've gone along the practice path how very different it feels when the thoughts in the mind are thoughts of metta, or thoughts of compassion, or thoughts of renunciation, and thoughts of letting go. 
and what it feels like when it's otherwise. One is free from suffering and one is dukkha. But in taking a look at how we, we think and culting, cultivating these wholesome qualities in our heart-mind, we're also setting the stage or setting the seeds for the spontaneous arising of these states of mind to be there in the future. We're pr- planting the seeds for the arising of more of what is wholesome and beneficial in our own hearts and minds. And the Buddha talks about intention as being the forerunner of all things. So if the mind ha- has cultivated and is cultivating the intention of goodwill, of harmlessness, of renunciation, then the actions that flow from a mind that has done that kind of cultivation, whether they are thoughts or whether they're objective actions in the world, will conform with that intention. So we're gradually, gradually shaping our hearts and mind in this direction where we become reliable people where we become beneficial beings. A next topic that Bhikkhu Bodhi picks up is dealing with anger, um, dosa or ill will. And Bhikkhu Bodhi's take on this is, among the mental defilements disruptive to social harmony Perhaps the most pernicious is anger. Well, this is kind of an interesting statement. So he says, virtually all communities, including Buddhist monasteries, consist of people prone to egotistical desires and are in constant danger of being riven by anger, resentment, and vindictiveness among their members. The Buddha recognizes that while giving vent to anger brings a certain degree of satisfaction, he points out angry outbursts ultimately bounce back on oneself, entailing direct harm for oneself and entangling one in conflict with others. So he's got a lot of moral and practical disapproval of anger. And he calls upon serious monks to make heroic efforts to overcome it. So, obviously, anger is a biologically rooted reaction that can arise under certain sets of circumstances. Maybe it didn't in the Buddha once he was the Buddha. But then, we're not there, right? So here's a teaching that's pretty challenging. And this is uh, addressing being patient when criticized. Monks, there are five courses of speech others might use when they address you. Their speech could be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. Therein, monks, you should train. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with him, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and ill will.
So he's pointing to the immeasurables, the cultivation of the immeasurables as the direction of practice. And then he talks about developing a mind that's like the earth, where if somebody starts digging around it in it with a hoe or a shovel or something, doesn't really have a reaction. The mind is steady, it's imperturbable, it's non-reactive to this. But of course we can't do this by an act of will. It's not an, I'm not going to react, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know. (laughs) Well, yeah. So here's the standard he sets for his monks. I think we should assume they were quite accomplished. So, monks, even if a bandit were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, (laughs) he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teachings. Herein, monks, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness and starting with them will pervade the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with this abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This is how you should train monks. I think you only get one chance to train this particular... <laughs> Now you notice with this, the Buddha is talking to a particular group of people with a particular set of circumstances. I think we should interpret this as him saying, this is always the channel you want to be on. This is what you want to train. This is obviously an extreme example. And there's another piece here if we're going to look at this situation with clear comprehension, looking at the big picture of things. So the Buddha isn't saying that the use of the two-handed saw is acceptable, nor is he saying that it should continue or that it should uh, be ignored and not addressed. Right? Sometimes we hear these spiritual teachings and we take them to mean this is a training in passivity and I think that's really an incorrect interpretation. The Buddha didn't tell all the power people uh, of his time that they should just not exercise their wisdom or their authority in the role that they held. And this to me is uh, very significant because he accepted the world as it was and then looked for what was skillful, what was empowering within the reality that was present. So for monks, this would be a set of instructions for them to practice. For the king or whoever would be in charge here, it would be understood that there something should be done about this. Right? And the Buddha, even though he, he had a mind filled with metta and compassion and no ill will apparently towards anybody, had the power to set limits with people. So... Once when the Buddha was at the squirrel sanctuary, a Brahmin named Bharavada, Vaja, the abusive, said, it is said another Brahmin of the clan has gone forth from the homeless life under the aesthetic Gotama. Angry and displeased, he approached the blessed one and abused and reviled him with rude, harsh words. And when he had finished speaking, the Blessed One said to him, What do you think, Brahman? Do your friends and colleagues, kinsmen and relatives, as well as guests, come to visit you? And he said, Yeah, they do. 
And he says, well, do you offer them some food or a meal or a snack? And he said, I do. But if they don't accept it from you, then who does the food belong to? And the Brahmin said, if they don't accept it from me, then the food still belongs to us. And he says, well, Brahmin, I don't abuse anybody. I don't scold anybody. I don't rail against anybody. I refuse to accept from you the abuse and scoldings and tirade you let loose at me. So it still belongs to you. It belongs to you. He says, Brahman, one who abuses his own abuser, who scolds the one who scolds him, who rails against the one who rails at him, he's said to partake of the meal to enter upon an exchange. In other words, mix it up. But I don't partake of your meat meal, I don't enter upon an exchange, and it still belongs to you, Brahman, it still belongs to you. So, that uh, image that's sometimes used is, you know, don't get in a wrestling match with a pig, because you both get muddy, but the pig likes it. (laughs) I believe it's drawn from this sutta. Okay. So, There's also this case where the Buddha kicks out a bad behavior. And on this case, the monks were together in the eastern park, and it was Upasita. And uh, they're there, and Ananda says to him, Bhante, the knights advanced, the first watch has past. The Sangha's been sitting for a long time. Let the Blessed One recite the Patamoka to the monks. So this is the code of monastic uh, discipline. So nothing happens. Then the middle watch passes and Ananda says, uh, the knights advance still further. The Sangha's been sitting for a long time and the Buddha was silent. And then the last watch passed and they're all still there, and Ananda says, uh, Bhante, the night has advanced still further. Dawn has arrived. Let the Blessed One recite the Patamoka to the monks. And the Buddha says, the assembly, Ananda, is impure. Meaning, there's somebody there that has committed a serious offense and they haven't acknowledged it. And then Mogdalana looks around to see who that was. Mogdalana had the psychic powers developed. And he fixed his attention on the Sangha, and then he saw the one sitting in the middle who was immoral, of bad character, impure, suspect behavior, secretive in his actions, not an aesthetic, although claiming to be one, inwardly rotten, corrupt, and depraved, but... He could sit all night, I guess, but. (laughs) So having seen him, arose from his seat, went up to him and said, get up, friend, the blessed one has seen you. You cannot live in communion with the monks. And the person was not cooperative, so this happened a second and third time. And then finally, Mogdalana grabbed him by the arm and evicted him through the gatehouse and bolted the door. So he said, I've evicted that person, the assembly is pure. And the Buddha says, it's astounding and amazing, Mogdalana, how that hollow man waited until he was grabbed by the arm. Now, monks, you yourself should conduct the Upasita and recite the Patamoka. From this day onward, I will no longer do so. It is impossible and inconceivable that the Tathagata would conduct the Aposaka and recite this in an impure assembly. So, this is a pointing out. Metta, loving kindness, compassion. This is, this is combined with realism and wisdom, right? It's not about no limits in terms of behavior or accepting any behavior from anybody. So, 
Another topic in this book is on proper speech. And this is a very powerful area of investigation. So speech is where our personal and collective mind states, views, and opinions become interpersonally real. Right? I do. Sounds come out. They're heard by others. The words are recognized from the sounds. Their meaning or a meaning is extracted from them. The one hearing thinks they understand or maybe they think that's unintelligible and not subject to understanding or maybe they're not listening or maybe they disagree with what they think is going to happen when the thought they're listening to comes forth. So speech can be a very powerful force for what's wise and loving and conducive to harmony or it can be divisive generative of hate, which causes deep harm that can last for generations. So it can be used to manipulate, to attack, to mislead, to motivate, to create unity, to uplift, to encourage, to heal, or to destroy. So the Buddha addresses speech in both the Eightfold Path and in the training precepts. So in the Eightfold Path and in the training precepts, he talks mostly about the kind of speech you should avoid. False, harsh, divisive, idle chatter, along those lines. But he also says some things about uh, what it would take for speech to be well-spoken. So well-spoken. When speech possesses five factors, it's well-spoken, not badly spoken, and is blameless and irreproachable among the wise. What five? Spoken at the proper time. What is said is true. It is spoken gently. What is said is beneficial. It's spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. So if you were to undertake a practice that would make you um, most prepared or most suitable to have a role in social transformation, I would really look to this particular area of cultivating the, cap- uh, the capacity to keep your seat and to maintain uh, sila and balance of mind in communicating around issues that are uh, controversial or which uh, can bring about uh, division or divisiveness. Because it's not like we haven't all heard the perspectives and arguments, right? So, you know, we listen to things just enough to get the gist of what somebody is saying and while we're readying our uh, rebuttal. So, mindful speech, speech as a power, knowing what to say and how to say it. The Buddha, when he was speaking to the monks, when he said, it said one should not utter covert speech and one should not utter overt sharp speech. And with reference to what was this said? Covert speech means indirect speech, not directly going to the person. And he says, here monks, when one knows covert speech to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, one should not utter it. 
when one knows covert speech to be true, correct, and unbeneficial, one should not utter it. But when one knows covert speech to be true, correct, and beneficial, one may utter it knowing the time to do so. Hmm, interesting. Then he says, here monks, when one knows overt sharp speech to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, you shouldn't utter it. When, he, when one knows overt sharp speech to be true, correct, and unbeneficial, one should try not to utter it. But when one knows overt sharp speech to be true, correct, and beneficial, one may utter it knowing the time to do so. Huh. So I guess that rebuke he gave to uh, the abuse of Brahman was not completely out of the range of what the Buddha would consider wise speech. But again, there's the touchstone of what would be beneficial and what would be timely and really looking at your own mind states. Now we're now living in a time, of course, where there's not just the mouth parts of individuals around the village well going, but there's the amplification of thoughts and ideas by social media and other forms of mass communication. So there's a science now of manipulating people based on understanding how to bypass the free prefrontal cortex and go directly to the primal centers. So none of this is accidental, right? So in the public discourse when, you know, things are just thrown out there of a hateful or divisive or denigrating nature in relationship to entire groups of people. It's being done with the intention of provocation. So you can see the wisdom of being able to hold your own center and ground and not let yourself be swept away by playing along with the game that's being offered you. So there, there isn't so much uh, benefit in playing uh, along with unwholesome and unskillful types of communication. Because it's kind of like having a dialogue with um, people who don't have moral grounding. So then, what do you do about that? So the Buddha is very clear about this point that it's not possible to purify the mind of another. <sighs> so the conversation should be with those who are interested in tr what is true. You know, my first uh, inquiry into the Buddhist teachings about social and communal harmony and what their foundation was probably was about 15 years ago. And I can remember being told by my teacher at the time that, well, if you looked at what the Buddha had to say about that, there would be like the, uh, the Brahma Viharas and the, the precepts. But you can see from the perspective of Bhikkhu Bodhi, it's actually uh, 
deeper than that. Yes, those are those are part of the part of it. The restraint from causing harm directly, the uh, development of the mind in the direction of non-harming. But this piece of discernment about skillful and unskillful is very important of recognizing that access as the, the power point. So sometimes it's actually not possible to find, at least in the short term, common ground with someone, especially if they're not playing in good faith. So I would make a big discernment between circumstances where there is good faith and interest in what is true and circumstances where there is not good faith and there is not interest in what is true. Understanding, of course, that we all hold partial truth, that our own views, opinions, and perspectives are conditioned just like those of others are. But with people who are in good faith, there can be exploration there, right? because it's possible for trust. But if there's not basic sila or morality present, or a basic attitude of goodwill, then it's important to know that that is the case. Right? Because the Buddha talks over and over again in this area of wise speech about the importance of it being beneficial and timely. So that to me implies Sama Sampajana, clear comprehension of the big picture there, and uh, not trying to overpower somebody, not trying to convert somebody, but offering what would be useful, what would be functional in real time. But in the in the circumstance of there being a lack of concern about what is what's true, or no basic morality present, then you've got a circumstance where it's the responsibility of the more developed person, if you want to put it that way, to guide, if possible, what happens next. Because otherwise you basically devolve down uh, to the other person's level. So this goes to the, back to the point of morality, which is there can't be social harmony if there isn't widespread basic morality. Right? The building blocks aren't there because people aren't trustworthy. So this is a, a major thing for um, our culture. Now morality is still trained in in many ways. You know, m- people learn it in families or maybe mislearn it in families. Maybe they don't learn much in families. So in which case we would normally turn to religious institutions, for instance. That would be a secondary source of basic morality. And yet we find religious institutions in this time are also faltering in many ways, right? except for the very fundamentalist kind of versions which have the, the, the power of their insularity to hold them together. But if, they're, if, they're, if it isn't present in the home, if it isn't present through contact with a re- religious institution, then where does it come from? There are certainly secular versions of morality which can be very sturdy and durable. But we're certainly not finding it inculcated in our culture through mainstream media, are we? When you consider the way that digital media now provide us the opportunity to pursue at will any kind of impulse whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, and when you consider the effect on people's mental health, on 
given the effect of digital media and inflaming inchoate desires for something that we imagine other people are having that we're missing or that we could have or that we could need or that somehow is real that would fix it all, it's certainly a train into greater delusion. So if you're going to look around and, and say, well, so where, where is the social evolution going to come from? I would say the greatest single potentiality that I see is actually through what you're doing here. Now that's a scary thought, huh? Because the limiter that we have as human beings is the capacity of our hearts and minds. In other words, it's the, whether bhavana is present there or not. So, of course, we're all conditioned by our cultures. We're conditioned by our cultural position, if you want to put it that way, by our personal history. But we also condition. So this is the upside of being embedded in this human matrix is that we're also always putting out things that affect the larger group, the larger community. So the presence of this uh, drive towards self-evolution that I see as being part of what brings people to retreats like this is a hopeful sign. And even though I sometimes kid about mindfulness getting very mainstream and this kind of ribbon you guys the other day after Jill's talk about the, the florid corpse about this is how you know you're not at an MBSR retreat. Still, that the culture at large is getting the idea that, oh, maybe there's something that you can do by turning your energy and your attention around inward and actually looking at how the heart-mind operates and using this capacity for mirror-like observation to actually begin to see what brings suffering and what brings freedom. It's a huge step for humanity should this become mainstream because it up-levels the whole baseline that we're operating from. Opens up all sorts of potentiality. Sometimes people have this question about, well, I'd like to be socially involved or I am socially involved, but I'm socially involved or I'm in a service role and I can see that I'm, you know, uncooked, right? I'm not at the two-handed saw level of <laughs> bhavana. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm at the don't even use the word saw and I'll give it up level <laughs> of bhavana. So we, but we can't really wait until we're fully cooked, right? I, I would suggest the possibility that we can get more cooked through the very process of uh, engagement with these matters of cultural and societal uh, development and holding it as part of our spiritual practice and not as something separate. Because, you know, we may not be at the Buddha level, right? But I don't want you to get big heads or anything, but you're like probably in the one percent percentile.
So when you get a chance, I would encourage you to take a look at this anthology by by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And I'll put it on the board later what it is. So, And um, take a look at it and see for yourself what, what is true there. You know, there are many, many different ways that we can, we can look at social issues, um, different approaches. You can look at it through intersectionality. You could look at it through uh, the dynamics of late-stage global capitalism. You could look at things through um, um, social psychology. You could look at, you know, some of the biological differences between people on different parts of the political spectrum. These, these are all interesting and useful bits of information. But I myself will be looking in the direction of holding the Buddha's view at the heart of how I proceed because I find it to be uh, reliable, trustworthy and reliable and to have the benefit of all beings at heart. And so in that way to be unitive and useful in seeing things as a totality. So, check it out later. May the merit of the practice that we've done here today be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings. And may the development of heart and mind which has taken place over the course of this retreat continue to open and ripen and may we place it May we place it at the use of what must be done. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.